So we'll be in Acts chapter 19, if you'll turn there. In a couple weeks, my family and I will be making a trip to the States. For a holiday, we haven't been back together as a family for quite some time, so looking forward to that. And having made that journey several times from Los Angeles to Sydney or Brisbane, <clears throat> the, the prevailing winds are always pretty much the same, and it will take about an hour uh, longer to go to the States than to return to Australia because the prevailing winds are kind of circling in a, a constant way. And the effect of that prevailing wind, it has an impact on how, how quickly you reach your intended destination. And the word prevailing, it's a word that's going to come up a few times in our, our passage today. It means gaining advantage, superiority, or victory, having effect, persuading, or succeeding. Many times in Scripture, prevailing is used with uh, defeating an enemy, like he prevailed over him. And when we look at the current moral trajectory of the world, it may not seem the gospel or the church is making a really big impact. It's prevailingly wicked, right? Prevalent. But just because something is prevalent, it doesn't mean that something can't prevail over it. This world, it's not going to be redeemed. This world is going to be dissolved and all the works in it. But the power of God can prevail in your life over the power of sin and darkness. The light of God's word, it can drive that darkness away and the comforting spirit can move upon you in power today. Despite the prevailing uh, moral decline of the world. Like David said in Psalm 20, I know the Lord will save his anointed. He, he was convinced of that. And we can be too. Even if we don't feel like it's everything is going well. Even when things seem to be going quite wrong. Jesus has prevailed over sin and over death. And this victory is possible for those who believe. So what a blessing we have in our Savior. The question is, are we experiencing God's deliverance? Are we experiencing his salvation today? Maybe there are things in your life or your life is such that it seems that the suggestion of victory over sin is a bit of a joke. Like, you, come on, you can't be serious. This is an impossible situation. But to go with that prevailing winds example, the wind has an impact on the plane, but the plane still arrives at its destination. Can you imagine if you didn't fly because there's prevailing winds that are going in the opposite direction? Like, up, oh, trip's canceled. The prevailing winds are blowing against us. So there's no use even trying to fly, like trips off. Of course not, because the laws of thermodynamics, the, uh, the powerful engines of that plane, it can overcome the prevailing wind and bring us to that destination. So we don't worry about the prevailing wind on an airplane, but we can worry about the prevailing darkness that we see in the world. But isn't the power of God far greater than a jet engine? Isn't his ability to overcome far greater than physics? He's the one that put that all into motion. He's the one who organized it and set it in place. Birds without flapping, they can use a prevailing contrary wind to gain altitude. And may that be for us, when that prevailing wind comes against us, when the enemy presses hard against us, that as we look to the Lord, those trials, those difficulties, 
They actually elevate us. They cause us to lift up like those wings of eagles toward our Savior as our gaze is fixed on him. Let's believe and trust him. Let's trust that he is he has overcome and we can prevail through him. And let's not fall into the trap of thinking we can prevail on our own. Because I'm a believer, I'm a prevailer, guaranteed. That I, I'm not going to fail, I'm not going to falter. And Satan, if he can't make us afraid, he'll trick us into surrendering when we've already won. Just to give up. Because it's too hard. And there's too much against us. But believer, let's look to the Lord. Let's trust in him. Not become self-sufficient or cynical. Because we seem to go back and forth between those. Bitterness, rejoicing gladness, depression. And, and the, the word of God is what corrects us and brings us back Say, hey, the Lord will save his anointed. We can rejoice in that. Well, why don't we pray and thank the Lord? Thank you, Lord, that you are such an awesome God, that you have prevailed. And it's like we know the ending of the story as we're at the beginning of it. As we're seeking to do your will, Lord, we know we'll encounter difficulties. And and our failures remind us of that. But Lord, we seek to, to look to you today, to receive your truth from your word, to be encouraged by what we read, to put into practice, Lord, as you fill us with your spirit, we ask that you would have your way in our midst today. You'd be pleased and glorified and honored as we praise you, as we read your word, as we draw near. Lord, draw near to us, we pray. Do marvelous things in our hearts and in our midst, despite the prevailing uh, moral um, wickedness that's in this world. Lord, may we not be numbered among them, but to be holy as you are holy, to come apart and to be separate, that we might honor and glorify you now and forever. In the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So Acts 19. The previous chapter, it ended with Aquila and Priscilla taking the visiting preacher Apollos aside to explain the doctrine of Jesus a little more accurately because he, he didn't understand the full ramifications of, of baptism and how it identified with Christ and his death and resurrection and, the, and how we have new life through Christ. He later went to the region of Achaia and the city of Corinth. And in our text today, Paul, he is now visiting Ephesus. So Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, and Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Paul went to Ephesus, that's modern-day Turkey, and he met some disciples of Jesus there. And the fact they're called disciples is significant because this shows that they had faith in Jesus. But like Apollos, their understanding was not complete. He had only preached the baptism of John, and we'll see that they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. Believers were without complete understanding of doctrine. They, didn't, they hadn't heard of something. And that can be us. That was me as a kid. Um, when I heard the gospel presented for the first time, I didn't get a rundown on the Holy Spirit and regeneration and what the Holy Spirit actually does. We use things, I guess, a terminology like you have to accept Jesus into your heart. That's a phrase not used in Scripture, but it's one that we used. It was like inviting him to your life through faith 
But Jesus is a person. He, he doesn't physically live inside you. It's the Holy Spirit who takes residence within you, right? But you may not have had that explanation when you came to Christ at the beginning. And that's where these believers were. They, they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't realize that once you're regenerated and the Holy Spirit has filled you, he's living inside of you, um, that you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, we read, the Holy Spirit, he's called in Romans 8, 9, he lives inside of us. And it's strange to me that uh, as believers, we can be very comfortable to believe and trust in Jesus, but when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, we get a little uncomfortable. Some people do. There's nothing strange or weird about the Holy Spirit and his operations. He, um, he is God. He always glorifies Christ. He has an office. He does not magnify his own office, but he points to Jesus Christ. And uh, Jesus speaks of him many times in John chapter 14 and 16. Gives us a good rundown on how the Holy Spirit works in our life. Paul continued his questions. Verse 3, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Paul asked them, into what were you baptized then? If you have no idea of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus had said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you're a disciple and you're not aware of the Spirit, well then what were you baptized into? And they said into John's baptism, which was one of repentance. And John was a forerunner. He was one that was, uh, his, his role was to point to Jesus, to make straight the way of the Lord, to, to say, the Messiah is coming and this is him, Jesus, the one who will save people from their sins. That baptism of repentance made way for baptism uh, with the Spirit. And this is the only time in Scripture when believers were re-baptized. Because when they heard that, hey, we weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. They were baptized in that name. And uh, when Paul laid his hands on them, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were enabled to speak in tongues and prophesy. Those are spiritual gifts provided by the Spirit. Tongues are praises directed to God. Prophecy is a word from God to man. If you want to read more about that, you can in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can go 12 to 14. I'll just do the whole thing. Unlike Cornelius in his house, if you remember, when Peter went to Cornelius, he just started talking about Christ and giving them the gospel. When they believed, immediately they were filled with the Holy Spirit and were baptized with the Spirit. They all started speaking in tongues as, as the disciples did on Pentecost. Then they were baptized in water. In this case, they were baptized in water. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they had that manifestation of the Spirit. So we see that there's no formula, there's no pattern, there's no um, set way that this is done. It's a gift of God. The fruit of the Spirit is spoken of in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In every believer, that will be, those will be evident. The fruit of the Spirit. 
And this coming upon is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, in the church when I was growing up, there was no real teaching or or there was no real activity in the ways of tongues and prophecy and interpretation. Bible teaching church, Christian, there's strong biblical precedent for both the baptism with the Holy Spirit and concerning their use in spiritual gifting. I wasn't taught in Sunday school how these gifts were to operate. I didn't understand that though the Holy Spirit filled me at conversion, that I could also be baptized with the Holy Spirit, just like conversion and trusting in Christ is distinct from water baptism. Right? They're two different things. Just because you've been baptized in water, it doesn't mean you've been spiritually regenerated. Right? Anybody can take a bath. Anybody can have words said over them and be sprinkled with water. But you must be filled with the Spirit to be baptized with the Spirit, but they're two different things. So conversion and the baptism with the Holy Spirit are unique. Many people struggle with the concept of being baptized with the Spirit because they have pray, they believe in Christ and they have prayed to be baptized with the Spirit, but they don't knowingly operate in a particular gift, and usually it's one that they expect to operate in. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we took the approach that people have to are you baptized, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit to Have you been born again? It's interesting, when we talk about being born again, we look to the scripture to show the fact that we've been born again. But with baptism of the Spirit, we can look to ourselves and say, look, because I have manifested this gift, I have been. But we're supposed to take both the baptism with the Spirit and regeneration based upon the word of God and the promises of God. Because it's said in Luke Luke 11 that if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Holy God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then we read in Acts chapter 2 that the promise is for us, for our children, to as many as our Lord will call in reference to that. So there's no special formula to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have hands laid on you. You don't need to even pray with anyone. We could ask, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? But it's probably better to ask, are you being filled with the Spirit? Do you want to be? Do you want to be filled to overflowing? Not just so you can have power, but so that your life might be surrendered to the Lord to do His will. The moving of the Holy Spirit is no stranger than the wind that moves the trees. Jesus compared that. He says, hey, the movement of the Spirit is very much like the wind in the tree. That doesn't make me uncomfortable when I see the trees moving. How is the tree doing that? How is it shaking? Well, it's the wind. It's moving. Oh, okay. I'm I'm not really worried about that. So we shouldn't be worried about the Holy Spirit or concerned that, you know, something weird is going to happen. No, the Holy Spirit will move in your life when you surrender your life to him, when you present yourself as a living offering before him and you surrender, you say, Lord, I need you. Come into my life and fill me. We make a mistake to seek the blessing. Instead, seek God. He will bless. There's a big difference. It's like, instead of seeking healing, seek the healer. He will heal. 
He will bless. But if we're seeking something in particular, the Lord will uh, sometimes withhold that until we learn to seek him first. Acts 19, verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. For three months, Paul remained in Ephesus. He spoke boldly in the synagogue. He reasoned with the people who came concerning Christ, concerning the kingdom of God, it says, and that's Jesus Christ, repentance, the gospel, the fulfillment of scripture, the resurrection, the coming judgment, eternal kingdom of Christ. He, he laid it all out for them. But at a point, they did not believe and their hearts were hardened. Not only did they resist the way, but they spoke evil of it. They began to speak um, wickedly concerning the things of God. So Paul and the disciples withdrew themselves and sought a more willing and reasonable audience. It was a cue for them to, to seek those open for discussion. It's a good lesson for us sometimes. We need to do the first thing, open our mouths about the gospel. But if someone's hardened and speaks evil the way, we don't have to keep on trying to force them to see things differently, but go to those who are open to receive. And he took this opportunity in Tyrannus' school, which I wonder what kind of professor he was. It means tyrant. Uh, like you wouldn't want the ruler to come across the knuckles in his class. But... Uh, Tradition says is that during the siesta time in the afternoon, he would open up the facility for itinerant or traveling professors or teachers. And people wanted to hear philosophy. They wanted to hear about different religions and things. So Paul took that opportunity. It was an open door for him to engage with people who were seeking. So for two years, he would work making tents, and he would take that break during the day to try to speak the gospel to people who came through. So effective was that ministry that in two years, it says, all who were in Asia, all in that region, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul is staying in Ephesus. He stayed there for a long time. But that message of salvation reached everyone in the region. I find that so encouraging. While he's faithful to use that open door that God's placed right before him, the impact of God's word on the whole region was profound, where everyone heard of it. He was just working with his hands, speaking the truth. He wasn't traveling from place to place. It was the people he was speaking to who spread that word throughout the region. Let's not forget, at his arrival at Ephesus, there were those 12 men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They undoubtedly had a massive impact on that region. Because they were also spreading the gospel. They were seeking to do God's will. People have always responded to word of mouth, even in this digital age in which we live. When you buy something, do you ever look at the reviews? And knowing that some of those reviews can be a bit dodgy, somebody's paid them to do reviews, or maybe it's their own business, they're like, this is the greatest business ever. And you're like, hmm, come on, you can't have all five-star ratings. You can have a really good online profile and you can be a pretty dodgy business. 
But word of mouth, that carries weight. If you say, hey, try this product, it's going to have a bigger impact on me than just a pop-up ad, right? Because someone's told me about it. And you've almost, maybe you've demonstrated it for me. And I'm like, wow, that really is useful. That is good. We don't need more people to make an impact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But each one of us needs to trust God and believe him and open our mouth to speak the truth. To walk in light of the gospel in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. The church doesn't need a better website or a more polished presentation, though polished is good. It's good to, to be professional. Nothing wrong with those things, but we need to present ourselves before the Lord and humble ourselves before him. Each of us individually. Paul's given a lot of credit for the spread of the gospel, but if he was here today, I bet he would say, I had nothing to do with it. That was God's work. God did it. You guys ever frustrated that you know that something's true and you've tried to convince someone that what they're believing is, is a lie, but they just don't believe you? It can be quite frustrating. Where you're like, come on, the facts are right there. It's all in black and white. It's all clear. and They won't believe. But you know, God is able to change hearts and he can change minds in an instant, however he wants, whenever he wants. And we have to believe that he can still do that. We're going to see some crazy things God did. Verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Miracles are unusual. I, I think miracles are not, not that common in the world. But here, God did unusual miracles or special miracles by the hands of Paul. Ephesus in that part of the world, very pagan, lots of idolatrous practices, uh, superstitions. They, they, offered sac they offered sacrifices and incense to idols. They believed in charms and incantations and omens and luck and all these things. They were very into all that. And people observe a lot of superstitions today, just in case. And uh, it's funny, the things that, like, it's bad luck to open an umbrella indoors. You heard of that one? Or walking under a ladder. When I was a kid, stepping on a crack was considered bad, so you tried to avoid that. Just in case. I mean, you didn't really think it was going to happen, but, hey, if there's a small chance that I could break my mother's back by stepping on a crack, well, then I'm going to avoid it. There's so many other ones that are amazing, like walking barefoot on the floor makes you sick, or if you admire a baby, but then you don't touch the baby, it could be bad for the child. Um, if you cut a baby's hair before one year old, you can give them speech problems. Who knew? Um, drinking avocado while you're angry can kill you. That was another one. I was like, whoa, you want to get some humor? There's some great superstitions out there. But the thing is, this was the culture. It was totally filled with this sort of thing. We'll see, they had all these occultic practices and books and, and magic charms and things that they were into. 
And they were at the mercy of these superstitions that had no help for them. There was no promise. There was no life there. But there were things that they tried to avoid and there were things that they tried to do to try to give themselves a better life. The gospel is totally different because it actually changes people. Paul's working. He's working up a sweat. He's wearing aprons. People would do the equivalent of grabbing his tissues, bring them to people, and evil spirits were leaving. And people were being miraculously healed. And no words were said. He didn't pray over those cloths before he handed them out. No, people were like, what is this about? And they would take those and bring them to people. And God did miracles. And they knew that it wasn't Paul. It was Jesus through Paul who was doing this. The gospel was not a wives' tale. It had its basis in reality because they could see the evidence of it. This person was healed. That person had a demon. And now they're, they're cured. They're well. They're in their right mind. It's like God knew the exact way to reach those people and to impact them. And if God needs to do a special miracle today to get our attention or to win souls, can't he do it? Can't he do that today? Absolutely. It isn't hard for God. Given the spiritual power evident with the name Jesus Christ, some itinerant Jewish exorcists, they started using the name of Jesus to deliver people from demons. So if someone had an evil spirit, they would come in, and they had their own traditions, um, that they would their rituals and things they would do. And it said these vagabond Jews took it upon themselves to do this. God hadn't called them. They didn't know Jesus Christ, but they took it upon themselves as a bit of a, a ministry, a moneymaker. They were kind of like the, I guess, the equivalent of those snake oil, cure-all salesmen who would come in in the old days and sell their product and be on their way and go on their circuit. Well, they were doing very much the same thing. If you had a problem, they would, they would for a fee, they would take care of that problem. And they were the sons of a Jewish chief priest. Maybe that bolstered their credibility, like they had the pedigree. They had the pedigree and they had some results. They validated their ministry as best they could, but in great contrast to Paul, the cre- their credibility would be stripped bare. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So the seven sons of Sceva, they go in. They're, you know, ready for this spiritual conflict. And they say, we we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon says, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who are you? Beats them up, strips off their clothes, And they run out of the house, and everyone sees this. Whoa! In Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Tarries, there's a chapter called Known in Hell. And it always impacted me. He wrote, observing this testimony of the evil spirit, This is the highest praise that earth or hell affords to be classified by the enemy as one with Jesus, 
Spirituality that saves men from hell and keeps men from vulgar sins is wonderful, but I believe elementary. When Paul went to the cross, the miracle of conversion and regeneration took place, but later when he got on the cross, the greater miracle of identification took place. So he was identified, grouped in with Jesus by that spirit. And it's remarkable, it's not really remarkable that the demon knows that he was created by God or God is his sovereign, but isn't it remarkable that he would recognize the ones purchased with the blood of Jesus and hold them in the same regard? I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? They were imposters. They didn't know Christ. They had not been purchased with the blood of Christ. Even as there's angelic hosts, there are malevolent spirits who are in rebellion against God. We see there's boundaries that they are forced to observe, like in the situation with Job, where God had put a boundary. He put a hedge of protection around Job and then said, okay, you can afflict him, but don't touch him. And then it was like, well, you can afflict him, but you can't have him. And God allowed it for a season, but only to the end that he would be doubly blessed. So God had a purpose in what he allowed. Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to sift you. You guys ever sifted flour before? Like shaking it, breaking it apart into little pieces? That doesn't sound fun. Luke 22, 31 and 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He did not pray, Lord, forbid Satan from sifting him. No. He let him be sifted. He let him falter and fail. But he prayed that his faith would not fail, that he would return to Christ, and that he would strengthen others in the end. God used that sifting to humble Peter, to show him his need uh, to be confessing his sin. And he can rede- God can redeem even our failings for his glory. So the man, he, he overpowers them. He prevails against them, it says. And they ran out of the house. They were unable to do anything to resist him or overthrow him. And this incident became known to all Jews and Greeks by word of mouth, maybe even from the sons of Sceva themselves. Maybe they told the story about what happened. I don't know. But what was the result of the incident? It says, fear fell on all the people, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. When you talk about demons, sometimes people can be a little scared of demons. Talk about Satan and his fiery darts. You can be a little, ooh, he's out there like a roaring lion. But that's not what the people were afraid of. The, the, the fear that came upon them was of the Lord Jesus, who is great. The one that this, this uh, spirit testified of. Like, oh yeah, I know Jesus. He puts me in fear. Christ's power had already been dis- demonstrated through the casting out of demons, through rags. There was nothing uh, to fear in this demon. It was Jesus who is greatly to be feared. He is glorious and powerful. And the name of Jesus was magnified through the incident. So it wasn't Paul who was getting credit. It wasn't the demon, uh, the existence of demons that was getting more attention. It was the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
When something's magnified, what happens? It's usually, we'll use a telescope to see far off heavenly bodies to see them more clearly. A microscope is used for things that we cannot see with the naked eye to bring them clearly into view. Some of us need glasses to magnify so we can see words a bit clearer. So things that are fuzzy, they sharpen up. And that's what happened with Christ. His name was enlarged. People who hadn't even heard of him before, now they're focused on him. They're able to see how he works in the lives of people, his power. This revelation of Christ, it led people, I'm sure they had wide open eyes when they saw those guys running out. They're like, oh man, did you see that? Those guys ran out of there all beat up. I'm sure they were pretty, or even hearing the story, they were pretty amazed. But they didn't just look out there. They started examining themselves because they feared Christ. Years ago, I had a, an unforgettable incident at church, really. I was told, Ben, you need to talk to somebody. I thought, okay. And I went up and I met a very fearful man who was kind of waving a book and putting it in my face. Have you seen this? Have you read this book before? I'm like, no, no, I've never read that book. And I can't recall the title, but it was about the reality of a, a hidden spiritual world. And he says, you know, people think I'm crazy, but I have the recordings. I've got the recordings in my house. You can come over and listen to them. I have, I have the spirits and they speak to me. I've been recording them. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, it was obvious this guy was a bit unstable. He, he looked a bit unhinged. He was just really scared. So I didn't doubt that. And he says, well, Tuesday I have an appointment to have an exorcism done. And I was like, Tuesday? Man, today is the day of salvation. And, and it surprised me because he's like, oh! And he like kind of fell to the ground and He's like, oh, my face, they're hurting me, they're hurting me. And I was like, well, huh. like, all right, let's pray for this guy. So I was praying for him. I said, call out to Jesus. And, and he started quietly, help me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Louder and louder. And finally, a minute later, this guy is beaming. He is at rest, and we're just sitting there. And I'm like, I don't even know what happened. Like, what, what was, this is the most amazing conversion experience I've ever, like, I've never seen anything like this. I, this is wild. But all I know is that man came in afraid and frightened and waving this book in my face. And minutes later, he was calm. He was just holding the Bible. He didn't care about his book. He's like, I just want to dig into this. I want to read more about Jesus. People are asking me, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. God did something awesome in that guy's life. He's changed. Something about him has totally changed, and that's God's doing. Calling Jesus as Savior. God did an exceptional miracle that day, and he still does them. He does that in people's lives. And there's no one in heaven or on earth that can save like that, who can take away fear. Because you can have all the money in the world and be afraid. You could be insecure. You could be worried. And, and nothing can, can take that away. But Jesus, he is a savior. He is a deliverer. He's a redeemer. And let's never value the miracle more than the savior. And I'll ask you, do you need a miracle? Do you have a situation where you're like, well, I need a miracle here? Well, then you need Jesus. That's who you need. You need Jesus more than a miracle because Jesus, he does miracles. 
And if you're just seeking the miracle, if you just want something to change, well, then you're not going to be changing much. But if you come to Jesus and you have him, you have everything, you have life, and you have a future and a hope that no one can take away from you, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of God. So what power we have in the name of Jesus, but we need Jesus is what we need. We need him. He supplies everything we need. So praise God for that. Let's praise him. Let's trust him. You know, there's no shortage of the sons of Sceva today who are selling their wares and their services who claim to be somebody. But Jesus, he's the one to be feared and praised. What a God. What a Savior. Acts 19, verse 18. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. When the name of Jesus Christ was magnified, people believed on him as Lord and Savior. And Jesus taught, no man can serve two masters. Following Jesus is an exclusive way. There's one way to salvation. That's through faith in Christ. And many of these people we read had been ensnared with occultic practices, with superstitions, with uh, witchcraft. Repentance precedes salvation, and if we'll follow Jesus, then all the other idols have to go. Everything else that we've been trusting, it needs to go. There has to be a clean break. And those who previously practiced that witchcraft, they brought their books, they burned them together in the sight of all. A few years ago in Cambodia, I was blessed to see a woman who was a Buddhist previously commit herself to Christ and and they took the bracelet off of her wrist and they took the the string off her belt that she'd wear under her clothes and put it and, and burned it. And that was just, hey, I'm leaving this. These these things where you could make a vow and then you have to put a string on, or it gives you protection or a blessing. It's like, I don't want any of that anymore because that's just a curse to me. And instead, I want to make, I want to just burn that and to trust Jesus for everything, to give me what I need, life. That's what Jesus does for us. He breaks all those bonds. We don't have to have them anymore. We don't have to be afraid of evil spirits or death, bad luck or the evil eye or anything like that. These people, they confessed their sins publicly. They even brought their old books and they burned them. They were valuable. They were worth money, but they didn't want to profit from them, nor did they want to pass this uh, curse on to others. And so they just burned them all, 50,000 pieces of silver. It was worth a lot. But those people only gained by burning them. They didn't lose anything. They only gained because they had committed themselves, themselves to Christ. And this cleansed church was an effective one because we read in verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The prevailing culture, what was it? It was idolatry, superstition, witchcraft, evil. It was an evil culture. But the word of God grew mightily and prevailed over it. How cool is that? The demon-possessed man, he prevailed over the imposters, but Jesus Christ prevailed in the hearts and lives of those who trusted him. 
You can beat up a man, but it doesn't mean he's changed. I wonder if those sons of Sceva went right back to their their ways in Corinth. Like, all right, we've kind of reached the end of our profitability here, a little scandal. We'll just move on to, to another place and keep doing the same old thing. Or I wonder if they changed. I wonder if they said, you know, there is power in the name of Jesus. We need to be actually redeemed by Jesus. He needs to be my Savior. When, when Jesus and the Word of God prevails upon the hearts and minds of people, they change and they keep changing in marvelous ways. That's the awesome thing about our Savior. We repent of the things we used to love. We chuck them out. And I'm sure all of us have a testimony of things that God's delivered us from, from bonds that he's broken by his grace, that we've been set free. And we who have been sent free can always be tempted to go back to bondage. We don't have to lose heart in the face of prevailing evil because Jesus has prevailed. That's something we can always take to heart. You could turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 through 15. It's easy to be discouraged when we lose an eternal perspective because we, re- we, we can know that Jesus has won the victory. It's like we know the end of the story. Have you guys ever watched a movie and you're perhaps one of those people that, that gets a bit nervous and you ask a lot of questions and what's going to happen here? I just need to know. Like, is he going to die? Oh, okay. If you just say, everyone lives, don't worry. Okay, cool. I can relax now and enjoy the movie. But I'm like, but that's not enjoyable. Then the suspense is all gone, right? We know the end. We, we've, but we've seen the beginning as well. We know God created this world and that this world is perishing. But Jesus has risen from the grave and he has defeated sin and death. And though sin is alive and well in this world, we can be delivered from that. It doesn't have to have power over us any longer. Jesus has prevailed. Let's not lose heart. 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 15. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, there will be evil people. There will be imposters. It will get worse and worse. Don't let this surprise you. But you need to continue. You continue believing the things that you're told in the scriptures that you've learned and been assured of. Don't forget. We need to, we've been assured that something's true. Well, are we believing that that's true or have we forgotten? There's many deceptions in the world. And Satan may seem to have strongholds everywhere, but let us continue in the truth of the gospel. Let's fear the Lord. And let's walk in these lessons that we learn through Christ and Paul and the scriptures that make us wise to salvation and maintain that faith in the Lord. Keep trusting the Lord, no matter what happens. No matter what happens out there, no matter what happens to you, 
know that he is faithful. Don't let those prevailing winds get you down and cause you to nosedive. Instead, rise toward the Lord. Turn your eyes upward to him. Elevate rather than allowing those things to depress because it's so easy. Depression can hit so fast where things are going great and then the phone call or someone says a sentence to you and it just, I'm speaking for myself. How we need Jesus, how we need to keep our eyes on him. As we're sifted, may we be purified. As we're refined, let's trust him. In spite of pains and difficulties. Because not only are we known in hell, but we're known in heaven. That's much more important. Christ knows us because we're his and he is ours. And let's make him known like Paul did. Hey, where God has you is where he wants you. Keep serving him right there. Go through those open doors he presents, and he is able to do it. He will deliver and save. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are just an awesome God. You are higher than any other name. Lord, there are millions of of said deities in this world, but you have overcome every one of them. They are nothing before you. You are glorious in the world you've created. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice, and thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've filled us with the fullness of God and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and our minds through our Lord Jesus. And you will present us faultless before the presence of the Father with exceeding joy. You are wise, Lord. You're perfect in all your ways. We magnify your name, and may your name be exalted in each one of our hearts. May we fear you, Lord, not the world, not the darkness. May we look to you. May we trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would do those unusual miracles that are needed so that we would uh, trust you, not seeking the miracle, not seeking something for ourselves, for our benefit, but for your glory, Lord. Put in us that heart that praises you and trusts you that even if the whole world, which it is, Lord, going to hell, that you will preserve us, you will present us, you will provide and protect us. Lord, you're so good. We just rejoice to know you. We rejoice to make you known. And I pray that you would fill us all with the Holy Spirit, that we might do your will and please you in Jesus' name. Amen.